Whether you're starting a game or starting your day, you need to pick a starting lineup and you're going to want the starter from Jack Black. Loaded with the superior skincare the pros love, Kings fans can get the starter for just $10, shipping included. Available exclusively at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, the starter has four of Jack Black's best-selling skincare and shave products, plus a full-sized intense therapy lip balm, SPF 25. Here's to the winning combination for 2023, the LA Kings and the starter from Jack Black. $10 plus free shipping, available at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, while supplies last. You're listening to an L.A. Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit lakings.com slash podcast. I mean, I want to play Edmonton again. I want to beat them. We made some adjustments before last night's game, and we were, I thought, the better team in last night's game. I would love to play Edmonton again. I mean, that rivalry is just growing and growing, and that's the type of things you live for, and that's all I'm going to be thinking about all summer is uh, the Edmonton Oilers and losing to them and getting another chance at it. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the L.A. Kings. Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. I am Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. Apologies for all of those who are looking for a Game 6 recap or a series recap on Monday morning. I got home very late after Game 6 and was up very early the following day for the exit media, and we decided to give it a few days to breathe, give us a chance to collect our thoughts, and sort out what we're going to be doing this summer. We've got episodes planned for a few months ahead, actually many months ahead, so don't worry, we're going to be bringing you new episodes during those bleak stretches where there is no hockey. Today we're going to recap the Oilers series and give you what we thought were the highlights of the exit media with the players, head coach, and GM. Next week, we'll take a look at the 10 biggest questions facing the LA Kings this summer, and there are some big questions facing the LA Kings this summer. We'll have player evaluations, draft prospect previews, draft coverage, playoff reactions, development camp later in the summer, NHL awards talk, guests, interviews. Listen, I have multiple spreadsheets with all of our summer plans. We're not going anywhere. As always, feedback is welcome. In fact, it's encouraged. You can reach out to me on social media, Twitter, Instagram. I'm on two Discord servers now, God help me. Uh, Facebook, if you're my age or older. Or you can always send me an email at kingsmenpodcast at gmail.com. All right. You came here to listen to some hockey talk. So, let's get talking. All right. Exit interviews have happened. Game six is over. The Kings have been eliminated from the Stanley Cup playoffs. In an ideal world, Zach Dooley, who joins me now. How are you doing, Zach? Jesse, I'm doing pretty well. Sorry, I interrupted uh, my own sentence. Yeah, yeah. First sentence in. Yeah. Uh, we exchanged pleasantries before we went on the air. So yeah. It was out of the way. Uh, in an ideal world, and Todd McClellan even referenced this in the exit interviews, in an ideal world, the series would have ended Saturday night. We would have had an episode Monday morning recapping Game 6 and the series. Exit interviews would have occurred in the middle of the week. And then maybe we would have done an episode on Thursday talking about what was said in the exit interviews. Instead, what happened is game six ended Saturday night. The series was over. Game There was no game seven. Exit interviews were Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You and I were tired <laughs> and exhausted. True. And decided, you know what? We're not going to sit here and sit through whatever, what amounted to three hours, if not more, of exit interviews. 22 interviews. Yeah. Then try and process everything we heard then record something talking about the series and the interviews. So we thought we're going to skip Monday's episode. We're going to do both 
today for Thursday's episode. So let's quickly recap the series because anyone who listened to all game, all five game recaps and six game previews should have a pretty solid take on what the events of the series were. And I want to preface, sorry, there's a lot of talking and I apologize. I want to preface. I mean, it is a podcast. (laughs) Everything, everything we say about game six and or the series should be prefaced by the Edmonton Oilers are a very good team. They were the higher seed. They possessed the best power play in the history of the NHL. And if I'm not mistaken, they were the highest scoring team in the league this year. So the Kings losing to them in the first round, while disappointing to Kings fans, should not be treated objectively as some sort of colossal failure or disappointment, even though I am personally disappointed. I think you're half right. I think I half agree with you. I think it it is not a colossal failure, but it is disappointing. Sure. It's frustrating um, because for all of the things that you just said, and those are all correct, the Kings had every opportunity to win the series. They simply were outplayed. And that to me isn't they were outclassed. It was just they were outplayed. And had they played at their best across those six, I think we're recording a different episode potentially today. So I I think it is disappointing because this team showed that it could have won that series. Whereas last year, it was happy to get in. In a realistically, like, yeah, they had the opportunity in game six, but they were the worst team last year, far and away. They, They were just not as good of a team as Edmonton. This year, that gap was so much tighter that I think the Kings were more outplayed than they were worse. And to me, that's the difference to where I I do think it's disappointing. And I think the group felt it was disappointing. I think any conversation about the series at this point is going to reach quickly reach the level of what my uncle calls violently agreeing. Um, So, like, I would agree with what you said. However, I would modify it and say, I think the cracks in the Oilers are visible. They are plainly visible and, and there is a path to beating them. However, it's a lot easier to say, I see the path. Without a doubt. Than yeah. it is to actually walk the path. Without a doubt. Yeah. For sure. Um, we're, we're, I don't think we're saying that differently. No, we're things, violently agreeing. Right? We're violently <laughs> yeah. agreeing. Um, but it's a podcast, so yeah. we're talking about it. But, you know, I, I think, but I think it's a good thing that we're not just sitting here and being like, oh, the Oilers are, yeah. the Oilers are way better. Really cool to make the playoffs it's because this team has taken enough steps to where we are disappointed. Because the path to getting to round two was clear. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't achieved. And I thought that was overarching the main takeaway from the exit interviews, which is very different, if I recall, than what those takeaways were last year. Yeah. In game, I think in the game six preview, I introduced this little method I have of evaluating series, right? And I referenced the 2012 Stanley Cup finals where I said two games overtime. Two games, New Jersey won by, I think, a goal, maybe an empty netter. Mm -hmm. But then the other two games were blowouts for the Kings. And so the end result is the Kings win, and they should have won. Unfortunately, if I apply that same method to this series, the two games the Kings won were in overtime. Yeah. And one of them was on a controversial play in overtime. Mm -hmm. And the other one they scored with, I don't know, whatever, 15 seconds left um, and had a goal. Now, I... That goal was absolutely not a goal in game one for the Oilers. It was a high stick. There's no question about that. But from an Oilers fan perspective. Jesse, you, that stick was touching the retired yeah. banners in the rafters. Yes, no, that, that was, was so high. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying like. It hit, it hit the 99. 
there, the there is a, a very accurate way of looking at this series and just saying the Kings were were handily defeated in the first round. Um, and I don't know what the point of that is other than to pretend that I'm being objective when obviously I'm not. I'm a huge Kings fan and the Oilers are terrible and we should have beat them. But, but there's also an overtime loss. There's yes. also a one-goal loss oh, no. with a goal three minutes left. And there's also a two-goal loss that had an empty netter with 30 seconds left. So game five aside... The margin between a 4-1 win one way and the other way wasn't that big. No, the only game that was decisive in this series was game five. Mm-hmm. And that went it to the Oilers. Clearly. Yeah. And even despite the fact that the Kings were handily outplayed in that game, you could still look at like a couple bounces and being like, they had no business being in that game, but were like one bounce away from it being a one-call game in the third period. And the script of game five was not... Su- substantially different from scripts in other games at the end of the first period it was anybody's game the Oilers had a lead but it was not and kind of similar you walked into the the intermission saying like fortunate to be within a goal but you're right there if Mm -hmm. you can get the next next one to go so my takeaway you know if i have to sort of boil it down and it's not it's not a novel concept. We heard it plenty of times in the exit interviews. Is the Edmonton Oilers power play killed the Kings in the first round of the playoffs? Yeah. But it did. No doubt about it. But the Kings were not outscored on special teams in the series. Sure. And last year, I believe the final margin was 9-2 in mm-hmm. favor of the Oilers. This year, I believe it was 10-9 Kings. So the power play of the Oilers, there were no answers. Um, players, coaches tried their best to use words. They acknowledged that it was an issue. They acknowledged it's a, it's a key point of the offseason of finding how to fix it. But it it wasn't the difference in the way I thought that it would be the difference. If you told me at the beginning of the series the Kings would score more goals on special teams than the Oilers, I wouldn't have thought they would lose in six. Now, are we including four on four in that? Yes. Okay. And shorthanded. So I, right. I believe it was nine Edmonton power play goals to eight Kings power play goals to one King shorthanded and one mm-hmm. four on four. I'm not looking at the numbers. I'm just that sounds right. going off of a rough estimation. But even if it's one the other way, it's within a goal, right? Like it was yeah. very close. And that was such a clear difference. Last year it was literally a goal a game. Like every it was like starting every game down one oh. That's how big the disparity was. This year, while the, the penalty kill did not get the job done, the power play did. They got those goals. They scored two power play goals in overtime. They got a key one late. They got three, two or three and three special teams goals in game six. So they got the job done scoring wise on special teams, but the penalty kill just, just didn't have what it needed to have. This is my final note. Um, actually, before I get to my final note, I want to make one quick distinction. Uh, Cause I was talking to somebody about, I don't even remember what it was. But I said, this thing that we were talking about, maybe it was a player, I don't remember. But I said, this thing isn't the reason they lost, but it is the reason they didn't win. Which is sounds like perhaps I'm saying the same thing. But I think I know what you're saying. Right? Like, yeah. last year, they didn't lose because they couldn't score a power play goal. Right. But in game six in the third period with a power play on home ice, they didn't score. And had they scored that power play goal, perhaps they would have won. So right. struggling on the power play isn't why they lost that series. Right. But it might have been why they didn't win. Mm-hmm. This year, I think the penalty kill isn't why they lost, but it is why they didn't win. Because had they held Edmonton to two fewer power play goals, that right. maybe. Anyway. And if, if and if they did that in games one through five, it's it's probably a chance to clinch on home ice, not right. a facing elimination. It's that fine of a line. 
And that probably is literally the difference between one game. Yeah. One way or the other. Here is my final note of game six, which inevitably meant that it was my final note on the series. And yeah. then we'll move to uh, the exit interviews because they will talk about the series. Uh, this team lost not to an unbelievable power play or the two best players in the league. This team lost to Clem Costin. <laughs> <laughs> that is a simpler way of, I think, a, of a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, because McDavid and Drysaddle's production is a constant. Mm-hmm. What wasn't was the supporting cast. And not the A-level supporting cast. It was the, the depth guys. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways... It ties into the the special teams thing. Like it's a notion of the series that was thought to be one way that actually went the other. It's like the wire. I think that's a good quote from the wire. <laughs> you want it to be one thing, but it's yeah. the other. You like if you said special teams, okay, but if you said depth, you'd say that's where the Kings can win this series because mm-hmm. they're four lines deep in the regular season. When everybody's healthy, they have a top nine, not a top six. They have three top six lines, and that's where they should have been able to capitalize and. What's funny is you don't look at any individual player on the Kings in the series and say that guy didn't produce because the numbers are pretty darn good offensively across the board, right? But Edmonton's guys in the bottom six produced. Costin had, what, three or four goals. Bugstad had a couple goals. Derek Ryan scored a goal. The rotating cast of 29 and 97 on the fourth line created goals for the guys around him. Yamamoto scored the game winner in game six. So, like, their depth guys produced at a level – that I don't think they did last year. And it was a big reversal of how I thought the Kings would win the series, because I would have said if, if the, the depth would be why the Kings won the series, but it might've been why the Oilers won the series. Yeah. No, I mean, that's because not, it's the not big a, guys are going to get there, yeah. right? Like they're going to, they're going to get their points. And on our side, Kempe, eight points, Kopitar, seven points, Arvidsson, seven points, Fiala, six in three, Deneau, five points. I follow four points on three goals. Velarde, four points in five games. They all games. produced. By, right? Byfield had four points. Yeah. Like, for all of the Sturm and Drang and oh, is he, is he, and he. Four points from yeah. six games in a playoff series. <laughs> and that's your, what, eight of your top nine forwards mm-hmm. right there. And all of them produced offensively. Yeah. So let's transition into the exit interviews, which took place the very next morning. Uh do you want to go players first or front office? Let's go players first. Hey, this is your show. Yeah, well, let's go players first. I'm just the, one of the, the Kings men. The, <laughs> the, big, the big hitters were Blake and McClellan. Um, this note is not <laughs> particularly interesting to anybody. I just find it funny about Kevin Fiala. Okay. <laughs> and it's something that the first time it happened, I sort of bristled because it was done to me. But now that I've seen other people, um, it happened to other people, I sort of find it funny. He has no patience for the... Kevin, uh, difficult loss. Uh, how do you feel about it? He's got no <laughs> no patience for that question. His answer is almost always, "What do you want me to yeah, say?" I, I feel bad. Is, yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to say? Yeah. The first time it happened, I did it to him early in the season. Everyone was in a scrum with somebody else, and he was off to the side. And I was like, "Oh, new acquisition, Kevin Fiala, star play." I think it was one of the early season, like eight nine mm-hmm. blowout games. Yeah. Like, you know, I was like. Kevin thoughts on a wild game. And he was yeah. like, it stinks. <laughs> we lost. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. You know who's got some of that in him as well? I found from an early age is Mikey Anderson. Mm-hmm. No time for a loss. And he'll, he's frustrated. Like, yeah. these guys care. Um, Kevin, one of, you know, some guys you could tell were still, can I say pissed? Yeah. They were pissed. 
12 hours after. Mm-hmm. Kevin was one of those guys. Mikey Anderson, Phil Deneau, still upset visibly 12 hours later. Yeah. Shows how much they do care. Kevin is in that boat. Um, you don't almost picture him in that boat because of his style of play, but he, he is. No doubt about it. Yeah. No, we're not going to go through every player because – a lot of the answers were of the, you know, listen, it's... We don't have three hours. Well, yeah. have three hours worth <laughs> right. of interviews. But also a lot of the answers were just, it's Sunday morning. We just lost last night. I don't have yes. a ton to say. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were, you know, power play, penalty kill needs to be better. We need to be better, et cetera. But um, there were some yes, some nuggets for sure. There were. But like, for example, Phil Deneau. I don't have any notes on Phil Deneau because what Phil Deneau said, while important and meaningful and I, nobody loves Phil Deneau more than me... It's, See, I had two. I had two takeaways from Phil Deneau. Let's hear him. One, um, it was difficult for his line to establish momentum throughout the year because of first Arvidsson's injuries mm-hmm. and then Moore's injuries. And we talked about Game eighty two in Anaheim as being like, "Oh, that's that line," yep. and they kind of said the same thing. Like by that point, and then the playoffs, we saw that line, but it was hard for them to get to that point because someone was either hurt or rehabbing pretty mm-hmm. much all year. Second takeaway was. That the Kings employed Deneau differently in the playoffs this year than last year, saying that last year he was almost a shadow to Connor McDavid. This year, they tried to use Deneau to impose his game on McDavid and the Oilers. And the results were, I believe, one five-on-five goal against Deneau with McDavid on the ice mm-hmm. during the series. So I, those are my yeah, two I would... unique takeaways from Phil I would quibble with that only because in the for middle games of the series he wound up not on the ice against McDavid but he didn't but it was still 60% of his yeah. minutes in the series were yeah. against McDavid though four and five he was predominantly away yeah now I do want to talk about Byfield because I had completely forgotten that he missed time this season you, it it feels like it was last year, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it just yeah. it. I had so gotten so used to the narrative of his first year. He was in the AHL. It was COVID year. It was shortened. It was weird. Second year, he broke his ankle in training camp. This year, he came in. There's a big black hole in my memory of what happened to yeah. him from November to December, and then late December he joined the top line, and then however many games absolutely it was great blank space in yeah. my head. So I was reminded yesterday or Sunday, excuse me. Uh, that he not only missed a month um, of playing time, but then was assigned to the AHL. So I went back and looked at the calendar and the timeline, and this is what I came up with. Uh, He played eight games to start the season from October 11th to October 25th. Presumably then that is when he got sick, and he told us that he had a fever for a month straight and lost 25 pounds, which I did not realize was that bad, which is bad. I feel like we knew... The mildest version of that story. Right. And then when you hear it like that, it's like, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so then he went to the Ontario or uh, to the Ontario Reign from November 10th to December 21st. He played 16 games. And as I was looking back on it, I was remembering, oh, yes, he came back. He had a rough start. Now knowing that he was. <laughs> <laughs> out for a month trying to rebuild yeah. 25 pounds worth of and then i remember that he had a quick you know that as he struggled yeah. he got better and better and then when he was recalled he played two games with kupari and uh, one game with kupari and grunts from one game with kupari and lemieux then was placed on the top line with kopitar and kempe and i did go back just to verify i didn't write the numbers down but i was like i know that that line got better when they put him on it or did i say that right when they put yes. him on the line yeah um, I know the line got better. I went back and verified, and it did. Like without a doubt, it did. Yeah. Um, 
the fever thing. I've never had a fever for a month. Mm-mm. But when I was younger, I did have a fever. And I was working in Alaska. <laughs> so I was separated from my support structure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was not comfortable. I was not in a scenario where I felt comfortable to seek medical attention. So I just had a fever for three or four days. But it was so bad that I hallucinated. It's the only time I've ever hallucinated in my life. And so hearing that he had a fever for a month and lost 25 pounds, I've never had that. I've just had this one brief (laughs) nightmarish stretch of days. I can't even imagine. And I don't know that he had a fever as bad as I did. But having a fever for a month sounds... I had a sore throat for a month recently, and it was horrible. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that you weren't playing professional hockey no, in Alaska. No, I was not. <laughs> no, asked to perform not. in a physical manner every single day. Well, I was being asked to perform in a physical manner against, every day, but not playing hockey. Not playing in the <laughs> NHL no. to where being a, you know, Quinton's a big man. Yeah. And being down 25 pounds, not being, I'm sure, able to be working out and staying in condition during that month. And you're asked to play in this sport. It puts something into perspective at the very least yeah, and makes you think back to even the year before when like this guy hasn't had a normal October through December in his NHL career. So like if he can get that, it just feels like a different version of Victor Arvidsson, mm-hmm. you know, where Arvidsson has said like the t- first few months were really tough for me because I had no summer kind of the same for Sean Walker You're coming off injury. It's different because Byfields came in season, but he's missing these months and then you're spending time while others are already at top speed trying to get yourself back there. And it's hard to do. So it would be really, really exciting to just see Quinton Byfield available for a full year because I really think we'll notice a difference. And doing it against top competition. Yeah. Right? Like he like he got two he got a month in Ontario, then two games on the fourth line, and then welcome to the big leagues, go up against every team's best defenders, best forwards. Every night, because yeah. that's what that's what Kopey does, right? And and improved his line mates without a doubt, defensively and offensively. Yeah. And um, the numbers and the quotes both yeah. both suggest it. And I, I want to nip in the bud the notion that we are sort of making excuses for a high, you know, high pick who has who has not produced at a level you know compared to other players taken in that spot. First of all, that always annoys me because. The notion that a player is taken in a certain spot should compare to other players taken in that same spot is always absurd to me. Like, guys are who they are. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, that somebody is taken second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Right. And somebody else taken second. Don't Like, Drew Doughty and, and Byfield were both taken second overall. Right. That should have zero to do with how their careers are compared. I don't care that one was taken second and the other one was taken second. It doesn't. It's irrelevant. Like it's, it, it is irrelevant. It's no. just a number. Um, and then on top of that, Quentin Byfield, in my mind, and I don't know why I care about this so much. <laughs> I don't find his progress disappointing at all. Like, would it be nice if he had the same point totals as Tippa? I suppose. But as I've said time and time again in past episodes over the years, I, the only number I care about ultimately is wins at the end of the regular season. And I'll modify that even another step is wins in the playoffs. You know, and Quentin Byfield has four points in the playoffs to zero. So. I don't think it matters whatsoever what Tim does. No, that is true. I shouldn't have even said his name. Alex LaFerre. Just doesn't matter. The Kings have Quentin Byfield. They don't have those guys. Yeah. And the Kings 
are clearly happy with the progress of Quinton Byfield. If we saw the same player we saw last year, that might be disappointing, mm-hmm. a red flag. But you saw a player that was immensely better than he was last year. And to say, ah, oh, the production doesn't matter, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. He's on his own timeline. The Kings felt that the best thing for the Kings was to play him at that spot. Doing that elevated the production of not only the players around him, but also the players moved to his spot lower in the lineup. Everyone's production got better, even if Quinton's only raised marginally, but his production got better as well, moving up in the lineup. So I don't think it's excuses. I think it's just a a respect for the process. And I would really, really have hoped that the process playing out for Adrian Kempe or the process playing out for Gabe Velarde might have lent just an ounce of patience for the process playing out for Quinton Byfield. It doesn't seem like he's going to get that luxury, but we've seen it before. Players develop on their own timeline. And if we caved into the Adrian Kempe isn't scoring enough people in 2020, where would we be without a guy who has 75 goals over the last two years? Yeah, but the other, I mean, the other thing for me at Byfield is He's played 99 games, right? Because last year was half a season, and right. this year was just barely over half a season. Mm-hmm. The end result is he's played one full season and 10 games. Yep. And in those 99 games, he's got 33 points. And one of the things that frustrates me the most is this, is, and it has happened with a lot of the people that we enjoy <laughs> and hang out with, this, well, yeah, but he's not scoring goals. As if putting up points, helping your line, helping your team win doesn't matter because you were – and this is where I say the numbers, I don't I don't care. And it's the same conversation when people say we need we need offense from the back end. And, and I will just ask the question again, why? Why do I care where the goals come from? As long as the team is scoring goals and preventing their opponent from scoring. Anyway, there's a whole other side story. Um, I only have – The last one I have yeah. on the topic is mm-hmm. he is top 10 in his draft class in games played and points. Despite Good all of the things that we just so it's not yeah. as if he's performing compared to this status that everyone is whatever about mm-hmm. at this like super subpar rate. It's like pick tenth and he's ninth in points with fifteen years left in his career. Like yeah. maybe, maybe let the process play out. Yeah, no, that's an excellent note. Um I only have notes on one more player, and that's Drew Doughty. So if you have anything that really stood out to you on any of the other players, I'm all ears. Let me, let me pull up my article. Sure. Go, go on about <laughs> Drew Doughty, and then right. we'll, we can always circle back. Uh, Drew Doughty is nothing if not honest. Um, and one of the things he said that I was gratified to hear, because it allows me um, to say it, is that he, in Drew Doughty's estimation, didn't play his best. And while I didn't think that Drew Doughty was noticeably bad, when you go back and look at it, uh, Drew Doughty and Mikey Anderson were a strength of the regular season, and they were not equally strong in the playoffs. And I think both guys felt that way. Yeah. You know, Mikey Anderson was asked, what about your play? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, their top guys had 10 points each. Yeah. He knows what his job is. Um, Drew Doughty said, you know what, like, Thought I was good defensively. I didn't think I contributed enough offensively. And maybe that that one area was what the Kings lacked. And he, he said, you know, this time of the year, it's about sacrificing something personally for a greater good. He definitely did that in his estimation. But it is refreshing to hear those guys who have those leadership traits 
say things like that because it isn't just sunshine and roses for them. They believe that they could have done more to impact the series. And I feel like that's what you want from guys at the end of the year. If they didn't, in their opinion, live up to their own standard and Drew Doughty and Mikey Anderson's are super high, right? Like the role they play, their jobs here are very difficult and the standards set are very high. And to hear him say what they said, I found it refreshing and almost encouraging that these guys are pretty focused and determined going into the summer if they get in this position again. Yeah, Drew Doughty was asked, you know, because he had been so vocal in the past about wanting the team to improve and wanting to acquire players, he was asked again, you know, what does the team need to do? And to his credit, he said, I don't think the roster needs serious improvement. We just need to play better. Yeah. Which, as we said about the series, the path was clearly marked. It's harder to beat <laughs> friggin' McDavid and Dryside so, like, and if Clem Costin's going to show up and you know suddenly be a superhero. It's accepting ownership, right, yeah. of of the defeat. And he said, like, he clearly felt that had the Kings played their style to their best of their abilities, they could have won this series, which is what we talked about earlier, I think. Mm-hmm. So it, it was. I thought, again, it was refreshing to see that ownership taken by your number one defenseman and a long-term signed, you know, key part of this team. And it was it was refreshing. The other note I have for, well, I've got a couple more notes from him. Um, asked, <laughs> this is my favorite moment of the entire day. Asked I know who- exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> it's and it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to say, though? <laughs> you're going to talk about Gavrikov. And oh, salary. I also have that. Okay, down, okay, but, not, all right. But no, the one that, that I loved so much because I identify with it so fully is who does he want to see win the Stanley Cup? And his immediate answer was nobody. Yeah. You know, he thought about it and said, okay, I'm very good friends with Wayne Simmons and I would like to see Wayne Simmons. But notice he didn't say he wants to see Toronto win. He wants to see Wayne Simmons win. <laughs> Wayne Simmons win. And I find myself, and he was asked, you know, how much hockey do you watch in the playoffs? And he said, you know, I get into it but it's painful blah blah i did not watch uh, so far it's early yet i've not watched a single moment of hockey since the kings were eliminated from the playoffs i and looking back on it in seasons where the kings lose in the first round i don't think i can remember a single second round game that i watched (laughs) and in and in years where they missed the playoffs i don't think i watched the first round i'll watch the conference finals i'll watch the stanley cup finals but it takes me a while to be like, oh, yes, I have to decide who I'm rooting for now that my favorite team yeah. is out. And Drew Doughty's answer of like, yeah, nobody. I don't want anybody else to win the Stanley Cup. And I was like, that's right, Drew. I and, feel that. Yeah. Um, I watched Rangers-Devils game seven. Sure. Um, but you're from that part of the world. I, I was. And, you know, my my family and mm-hmm. friends are Rangers people. So I was I was pulling for them for them. They lost. So don't really have a Condolences. dog in the fight. <laughs> We've we've all I agree wholeheartedly that the Dallas Stars yeah. are the least objectionable team <laughs> remaining. Yeah, um, and that's that's that. I don't I don't see myself watching a ton of round two either. Yeah, um, but I, I feel I feel you, Drew. Yeah. Uh, the the other thing he said that I loved I didn't think it was funny, but I did like that he said it was that he wants to play Edmonton again. And I think he followed that up with the only thing I'll be thinking about this summer is the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, and like. It's a guy who wants the challenge, and even though it's not the easiest route to the cup, he wants it. Yeah. And he wants to get that win. He wants this team to get over the hump, and it's a competitor being honest, 
And in a world where hockey players are often criticized for not being honest, it's it's nice to hear to have Drew Doughty because he always will be. It's a cliche, but Drew Doughty, I believe, hates losing more than he loves winning. It's like a cliche, but it's never a cliche with Drew because he doesn't speak in cliches. No. He just says what he thinks, and it's usually at least relatable. Mm -hmm. Almost always. Yeah. Drew Doughty, I'm going to be an old here and use language I probably shouldn't. Drew Doughty is a hater, (laughs) and as a... Someone a fellow who's, hater. As someone else who has been accused of being a hater, or as I uh, said to one of our coworkers recently, I don't believe that I'm a pessimist or a cynic or a hater. I believe that I am, um, what was the phrase I used? Animated by the negative. That's, <laughs> That's probably pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the quote about Gavrikov, because that was funny. Um, Drew Doughty was asked about Gavrikov, and he said that he would like to see him back. And uh, it, the story has come out, I don't even remember how, that he has already been lobbying Gavrikov to resign in L.A. I think it was like his second week here. Yeah. Drew's like, yeah, I'm already trying to convince him to stay. Right. <laughs> so the question was asked, what can you do uh, to convince Gavrikov to stay? And his answer was, give him a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm and not sure that's legal. I don't think it is. It feels like cap circumvention. Yeah, but, yeah. but he went on to say, like, L.A. has to be among the more favorable cities and markets to to be in, mm-hmm. minus the taxes, mm-hmm. which was also funny. It's like yep. <laughs> it'll pretty much come down to taxes, yeah. which is like also pretty funny. Like obviously a a detriment to signing with the Kings versus say the Florida Panthers or mm-hmm. something like that. But um, it just reinforced a point that was not would didn't even need to be reinforced that Gavrikov fit this team like a glove. Um, the players would love him to stick around. Todd McClellan and Rob Blake seem like they would like him to stick around if the price is right on Blake's side, and we'll see what happens. Um, clearly, that dude fit in very well here, and I thought Drew's lighthearted answer, in a way, was the perfect summarization of, like, we want him to stick around. However, there's also the cap and the mm-hmm. finances and the logistics that have to be worked out, and a player who deserves to get paid. I don't want to read too much into it. I probably shouldn't read anything into it, but it was encouraging just because if the chance, like if it was perfectly clear that it couldn't happen, yeah, I doubt the lighthearted responses are there. Yeah, right. Like if Gavrikov had just told him, you know, I'm I, I'm going to, I'm testing the market. Yeah, you know or, or I know where I want to go or whatever. Right. Then it's one thing. Yeah, and I don't think there's lightheartedness. It's like, well, we'd love to have him come back, but you don't know who knows. Right, it's a business. Blah, yeah, blah. that yeah. wasn't what happened. Exactly. Um, all right, that's it on my list for players. If you want to tackle anything anybody else said. Oh, actually, I have one more for Drew Doughty. Sorry, he talked about the penalty kill. Lots of people talked about the penalty yep. kill. It is clearly, as I said, it may not be the reason they lost, but it is definitely the reason they didn't win. Um, oops, I hit my microphone yep. there. Um, I I couldn't tell if the comments the players made about the penalty kill were abstract observations made 12 hours after a disappointing playoff loss or if the themes that we seemed to hear through all the comments were a team that was disappointed in its own penalty kill over the course of two years if not more now knowing what they thought they ought to do but didn't feel comfortable just coming out and saying we're doing this wrong i feel like the best answer was Phil Denose, who kind of just like sighed and said, you know what? I don't know. Yeah. I need to look back. 
And I feel like it's too, it was too raw. You heard words like aggressive and too passive a mm-hmm. lot, but that's just a word. It's just a, it's a kind of an empty platitude unless yeah. you apply it to the system. Um, so is it, what were they saying? I mean, we could go one way or the other or a third and make a case for it, but without the context, we don't know what they were saying. That's why I liked Phil's answer of like, yeah, it wasn't good enough, but like, we got to look at it yeah. over the course of an extended stretch to say like, this is actually what went wrong. And I feel like that's what the Kings are going to do. And Todd McClellan, I think said, well, is it, we have off season homework or yep. off season priority like, of like a summer project, summer project. Yep. And that it clearly is. And the other thing that, that Dowdy said, you're right about aggressive and too passive. The other thing he said that I heard other players say was we, uh, it comes down to shot blocking. Yeah, and I was like, okay, but I was thinking about how the and Oilers' power play succeeded. Guys said that between five and six as well. But like, I don't you know, know that you can. I don't know how easy it is to block a shot on a guy from a low angle and a face off. It's one thing if the guy's bombing shots from the point, you can get out there and right. get his face. And and there were a few of those. Yeah, but off uh, a face and it, <laughs> Zach Hyman blocked enough yeah. shots for the Kings. Um, so anyway, that was uh, that was my my player thought. So let's go into Todd McClellan. Okay. Um. I wrote down my first note is better team than last year because Tom McClellan emphatically stated this team is unquestionably better than last year. I agree. The reason I wrote it down is because last offseason I said I could envision a scenario where the team missed the playoffs mm-hmm. despite improving. Yep. I thought they did improve. Yep. They did make, make the playoffs, yep. obviously. Um, and it is because of that improvement. Because of that improvement is 50% of why I was not as disappointed by the first round loss mm-hmm. um, as maybe other people were the other half is that the offseason will be very important and in my mind is more important than what happened in the playoffs but regardless as Todd McClellan said this team is unquestionably better than last year's team they lost in one fewer game but were yeah. undoubtedly better and it's it's essentially your analogy from the beginning of the year just slightly different right. circumstances like they played the same team in the same round and lost, and they actually lost worse, six games compared to seven. Right. But still, it was obvious that this team, top to bottom, was undisputedly better than last year. And to that point, this is a silly comparison, but the 2018 sweep at the hands of the Vegas Golden Knights, mm-hmm. in my mind, is still a more impressive performance than last year's seven-game loss to the Edmonton Oilers. I'm nitpicking... You know, if I sat down and broke it down why I felt that way, I'm sure other people may feel differently. But, like, in my mind, the fact that they lost in six versus losing in seven, I thought this series was closer than last year's series. Without a doubt, right? And yeah. there was no 8-2. There yeah. was no 6-0. Six nothing. Yeah. There was no – I know game seven was 2-0, but, like, game seven wasn't really that competitive. No. Um, so, yeah, I, even in the, the worst of this series, the Kings still offered more than they did in those three games last yeah. year. And I say that – Fully aware of what I said earlier in the episode about, you know, the only two games come, you know, coming in overtime and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Anyway. That's that's honestly, though, but that's how fine the line was yeah. because you can make that distinction either way. Yeah. And two of the games they smart. lost, they were either tied or leading with less than four minutes in the game, I think. Yeah. All, three. Yeah. Three of the four. Yeah. I mean, game, oh, game two was a tie game. Yeah. Ah, sorry. It was a one goal game down. It was tied going into the third. Right. Game four. Um, they led in the final yep. five minutes and game six, they were tied in the yep. final five minutes. Another thing that Tom McClellan said that I thought was, 
I mean, every now and then there's a human being that will say something that is so true and 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 remarkable, and then you look at it and you go, oh yeah, like I should have known that. Maybe part of me did know that, but I was never going to come up with this mm-hmm. sentence. And that was that both teams made each other better. Yeah, he said the Kings got better, the Oilers got better, mm-hmm. and frankly, both teams probably forced the other to get better. Mm-hmm. And that that's. A hard pill to swallow because you think, ah, geez, if we hadn't played the Oilers last year, if we hadn't played them twice down the stretch, and if we had maybe played them in the second, you know, if for whatever reason the Kings had had a different opponent in the first round yeah, and faced the Oilers, you know, in a later round, maybe it's a different series. Right. Very well might be. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a good point as well. Yeah. Uh, next topic. Uh, talked about Kopitar and Dowdy. And limiting their minutes moving forward, not tremendously. I think mm-hmm. he said, if you know, if Dowdy winds up playing twenty five minutes instead of twenty six, so be it. Uh, but obviously, Drew Dowdy will push back on that because he wants to play yeah. forty minutes a game. But this is what Todd has honestly been saying without saying it for yeah. a year, mm-hmm. which is like you need other guys though to be able to assume those minutes, and in order to do those things, right, like. In a perfect world, it's what the Kings have built up front is a chance to take some of the burden off of Kopitar because in an ideal world, you have a third line that's clamoring for second line minutes and a second line that's clamoring for first line minutes. And when the Kings have everybody, that's what they have. They just don't have it all the time. So I think it makes sense if they can get the right guys on D, it should be the same thing there where this series, you saw it, it didn't have to be Drew and Mikey always playing the big guns because you also had... Gavrikov Roy. And that I think is the way that you can limit those minutes without reducing the effectiveness of the team. There's another way that I thought of. Um, and I changed my mind on it a couple different times. I don't know how many teams, there's 32 teams. I'm not going to go through all 32 of them. I don't know how many teams play their top players, even strength, power play and penalty kill, mm-hmm. but it's certainly not all of them. Right, Eric Carlson doesn't play the penalty kill. Oh, here we go, Eric Carlson. Connor man. McDavid, as to the best of my knowledge, doesn't play the penalty kill very much for Edmonton. I mean, he scored a shorthanded goal against the Kings in the regular season. Oh, the regular season. But I'm like, a- I'm pretty sure he plays shorthanded. Does he? All right, I'm going to look at the at the playoff minutes right now. Penalty kill for the Oilers. Darnell Nurse Cody with or without him, I don't know. But your point is fine. Is still right. Yeah, not every team he played four that. minutes and fifty four seconds of, of penalty kill in the playoffs. So yes, he does kill penalties. I think he's the. Uh, Here we go. Leon Drysaddle minute twenty two in the postseason. So Drysaddle yeah. does. It. Um, and Bouchard also does not kill. That was who I was looking at earlier. Twenty eight seconds on the penalty. Mm-hmm. Now, Evan Bouchard is a younger player, but my point is Andre Kopitar is getting up there in age. Yeah. Drew Doughty is no longer a spring chicken. You don't have to play them on both special teams. And, you know, I think I read somewhere that Drew Doughty led the team in power play points this season. Interesting. I did not know that. So yeah. maybe, you know, identify players who are who excel at one or the other special team. And give Andre Kopitar and Drew Doughty a little bit of a break. The thing I finally came down on was penalty kill. Maybe as part of the summer project, they stop relying on their top offensive players to also be their top defensive players. It's a lot to ask. It is, but it's also tough because that's what makes Andre Kopitar Andre Kopitar, right? The fact that he is that guy who will have 70 points, but also finish in the top five in the Selkie. Like that's what makes him great. But you're right. 
it's a way to manage minutes, especially hard minutes. Like PK are not easy minutes. Those are very difficult minutes. And I don't know if you remember Dustin Brown talking about it, but he said like, he's like, there was a point when I just stopped killing. Right. It took me off the PK. I think it was around the time that he kind of had that resurgence offensively. He said he called that a difference in allowing him to be fresher mm-hmm. in those situations. It's a double-edged sword because like, are you going to look at a guy who is in that Selkie mix and say, don't kill penalties? Or are you going to say, hey, you're our leading scorer, but you're not on the power play? It's a, it's hard. But there are ways for sure to do that. And I feel like the PK is a way that you can potentially relieve not just minutes, but hard minutes. And it's not as if the PK is clicking at such a high rate that it can't be tampered with, whereas the PP was. The other comparison, and this goes backwards to a player. When I was a kid... Um, I paid attention to hockey, but there was no internet. There was no, well, there was no internet. There was limited cable. I had, you know, whatever the LA Times wanted to write about hockey and whatever copies of the hockey news I could get my hands on, you know, and even then the hockey news was a month behind whatever (laughs) was happening. So in, so when I reached sort of fully aware hockey consciousness, Chris Chelios had become a tough as nails, shut down defensive defenseman. Later in life, I learned, oh, he scored 73 points one year (laughs) for the Montreal Canadiens. I didn't even know he played for the Montreal Canadiens until I was in my (laughs) late teens. I thought he was just the Chicago Blackhawk his whole career. Drew Doughty's superpower is defense. He's a very good hockey player and, and one might even say a savant. So he is capable of scoring points and he obviously enjoys doing it. But I would not be shocked if Drew Doughty has a career similar to Chris Chelios that is extended by leaning on his superpower, which is defense. I don't, I don't know if that's... He's certainly... A, he's capable... Like, yeah. he would be effective without a point type guy. Absolutely. Um, others would not be. Um, so he has that in him. Um, he also had 50 points this year, including, like you said, a lot in the power play. So I, yeah. I, you're, I get the point for sure. It's a great conversation, I think. And it's one that I'm sure will be discussed because it was discussed in the exit interview. In Chris Chelios, and I'm sorry to keep drawing this direct comparison, in Chris Chelios' 12th season, he scored 72 points. In his 13th season, he scored 48. In his 15th season, or whatever, I've lost track of my counting. 72, 48, 42. And then in his final season in Chicago, he scored 34. Drew Doughty was drafted in 2008. He's a little bit further down the road than what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about in Chelios in his career. But at some – like Drew Doughty's career will be extended because of the fact that he can simply be effective playing defense. I'm not suggesting yeah. that mm-hmm. he stopped trying to uh, be offensive. Anyway, I don't know what the point of that was. Uh, next, Todd McClellan point. Uh, I'm going out of order here because I'm going to try and build to the final one. Um, he referenced that the, f- that the flu went through the team during the playoffs. Yeah. Also new information to me. The agreed. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. And that was why Kaliev. I thought that was an inter- interesting distinction he made that Kaliev, the first game he didn't play was because McClellan took him out. Yeah. But after that, it was because he was sick. Yep. And he didn't need to share that information. And what we know about Todd from the past, mm-hmm. I don't think he would have shared it if he didn't think it was important and true. Agreed. Like he, he would have just said, yeah, we took him out. He wasn't playing. Mm hmm. But the fact that he volunteered that like Yeah, and it wasn't just him, it was right. he exactly. was the, the primary example, but other guys were battling it. Um almost makes it like 
maybe you look at game five, be like, all right, maybe, maybe some guys were not quite themselves and it yeah. showed. And then game six, if they were sick, they didn't show it because impressive to, to battle through it. Or even game it four, right? If if the question is why didn't they close out game four? Mm-hmm. Was game four the one that – yeah. Yep. You know, they leaped out to a, a hot start and then slowly got worn down as the game went on. Like I don't know. I, mm-hmm. At this point, I am looking for excuses, but it's a plausible one. It's an interesting one, right? Yeah. Uh, McClellan also referenced Byfield getting stronger as a player. We talked about, you know, yeah. the weight loss and, and Todd has been extremely, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Con- uh, complimentary. Yep. Uh, on multiple occasions of mm-hmm. Quentin Byfield. It's interesting because this wasn't in the exit interview. I think it was between five and six when he gave the line of like, it was a lot harder for me to answer these questions about Quentin a year ago, but it's a lot easier now because of all the strides he's taken you can say, okay, the, the points, whatever, but Buddy's doing X, Y, and Z very well. Says the same things about a guy like Kempe when he's in a slump. He's like, yeah, he hasn't scored in eight games, but he's doing these things. Quinton's now doing these things. And I thought that quote was very telling. He mm-hmm. said, like, he's not he's not BSing, right? He's saying what he thinks about the way this guy is playing, and, it, and he's positive about it. He had what I thought was one of the slicker – answers to the questions about Gavrikov because multiple people were asked about them. Yeah. And I don't know I don't know what the rules are. I mean, I guess technically he's still under contract to the Kings, so management can say whatever they want. But obviously it's a nobody knows what's going to happen. So there's no point in saying anything definitive. But Todd McClellan went on a, a very complimentary little run of things yeah. to say about Gavrikov and then at the end of it said any coach saying that what I just said about that any player, obviously that's a player you want to keep. Yeah. Which I, I don't know why I thought it, I was so tickled by that, but I, I liked it. I thought he, he had that long, long answer about Gavrikov and mm-hmm. said from the moment they got here, they fit the team. Mm-hmm. Um, that was interesting because he's, he kind of implied that it's not always that way. He said he's, it seemed like he's had guys come in who are good players who just didn't fit the mm-hmm. group. It's hard sight unseen to know if they'll fit the group. The guys who were brought in did, which was good. Um, he also as he always references the, you know, I, I coach the guys I get. Um, he has input, and I'm sure he'll say, yeah, we like this guy. But he knows that's not necessarily his job is to re-sign Gavrikov and to decide the most important way to allocate space, um, potentially move assets to create more space. He knows that's not his role. But it's clear that if asked, he'd say, you know what? I liked this guy as a player that I had to coach, um, and he fit the team very well. Yeah. Final one for McClellan uh, is the penalty kill. And I have no doubt that somebody would have gotten around to asking him directly about the penalty kill. Right. But at the time that he was asked, at the time that he chose to talk about it, he was not directly asked about it. I think the question was something along the lines of, you know, you mentioned – evaluating systems and, you know, style and everything in the offseason, anything, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, listen, somebody's got to ask me about the PK. Yes. <laughs> and he said, it has to get better. Everything about it has to get better. We'll work on it in the summer. That's when he called it a summer project. And ordinarily, I would have taken that as, you know, Not seriously, right? Mm -hmm. It's an obvious thing that needs to be said, but I wouldn't have put any stock in it. 
the improvement on the power play from last year to this year makes me believe that we will see improvement on the penalty kill next year. I understand it's two completely different animals, but I didn't think the kind of improvement we saw on the power play from one year to the next was even possible. It was nine percentage points and from it, it, 27th to fourth. And, and like, looked. Yeah. I mean, numbers aside, right? night and day, <laughs> right? Like it went from, it different. went from being a detriment yeah. to being an unbelievable strength. Yeah. Like, it didn't even go from negative to neutral. How many times last year did we just say, if the special teams right. was average, right. how much better would they right. be? And it wasn't average. It was it was bad. Well, it was bad, and now it's good. Yeah. Like, it was a yeah. swing. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. So the fact that they not only are, I mean, they have to be aware of it, but not only that they are publicly acknowledging that they're aware of it, yeah. but stating it as a focus and a goal mm-hmm. um, encourages me. Agreed. All right, so that's Todd McClellan. Um, that brings us to Rob Blake. And most of Rob Blake's comments are probably going to wind up being referenced next week when we tackle the 10 biggest questions facing the team in the offseason because the words salary cap, mm-hmm. for Todd too, but I didn't dive into it because it's all relevant for Blake. It's a Blake thing. Yeah. The notion of the business side of hockey came up a lot. Yep. Um but I'm going to start with Rob where we finished with Todd, and that is Rob Blake's initial statement was that the penalty kill hurt the team. Yep. They have to find a way to close out game four. Yep. He acknowledged the team's shortcomings, didn't try to hide from them at all. I think he – and nothing that he said was new, mm-hmm. right? Like players had said those things and Todd had said those things. So it wasn't as if you know he was dropping a bombshell that was not shared by – the players and the coaches, which shows everyone's kind of on the same page. Um, didn't hide from those things, which I agreed um, is good. And also felt the team got better um, year over year. So in lockstep, I felt like with what we'd been hearing throughout the series and from the guys who spoke before him and all that's good. When it comes to um, this is going to be a, a long one. Apologies. I am aware of my flaws. As a human being, like everyone's got flaws. Nobody's mm-hmm. perfect. I like to think that I'm aware of my flaws. <laughs> and I've often said to people that I know that one of my saving graces is that I am self-aware, that I am aware of my flaws, correct, try to correct for my flaws. And where I don't, I am apologetic and patient with people when dealing mm-hmm. with my flaws. I firmly believe you cannot fix a problem if you don't acknowledge what the problem is. And a lot of people and a lot of organizations, professionally, personally, romantically, whatever, struggle with admitting problems because it's painful. It's hard to look at yourself and say, I'm chronically late to things. Right. Or I have a temper. Or my penalty kill is not very good. (laughs) Especially in an industry where you are the person who will be either blamed Mm -hmm. or rewarded for those things being good or bad can be hard to do that. Yeah. So just like I appreciated Drew Doughty saying he didn't feel that he played up to his standards, Mm -hmm. for the general manager to open his availability with, these are the things that we need to improve. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Identify them. Now we can can make that summer project worthwhile. Mm -hmm. We're not spinning our wheels. It's half the battle. Right. one thing to acknowledge it, though, obviously another to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that's – I want to say it's the hard part, but you, what you just said made me think that's only 
the medium part because the well, other part's a little harder than than maybe it, it should be. Did you see the Giannis Antetokounmpo press conference where he talked about failure in sports? I did. Yes. I, I know I'm you know the millionth person to say this, but is that how you say his name? I think so. Okay. I don't Impressive. know. Good on you. <laughs> uh, I agree with him a hundred percent. And there are a couple phrases yeah. that I hate in sports. One is unacceptable because, mm-hmm. as I've said time and time again, the people who are always saying it are the people least. Uh, in a position to decide what is or isn't unacceptable, you know, acceptable. Correct. Like yeah. when I'm in the last row of the 300s and the team loses game four by giving up a lead and I say, that's unacceptable. Well, right. okay, what am I going to do about it? Right. Nothing. I'm going to buy my ticket for next year. Acceptable to who? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and the other one is failure because it implies full knowledge of what was possible, what you were trying, what the goals were. Um, and I've totally lost why I brought up the <laughs> <laughs> the even the thought of it, but you're saying it was it's the hardest part is is or or whether or not accomplishing it is actually the hardest part. That's the part that gets judged, right? Like we say, there was a path available to beat the Oilers. They didn't do it, mm-hmm. so we're judging them on the execution. But we probably shouldn't, because as has been said by tons of people, the Oilers are a very good team. Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl are the two best players in the league. People mm-hmm. had picked the Oilers to win the Stanley Cup yep. and talked about beating the Kings as an afterthought. Yep. So, you know, that's what's judged. But what should probably be judged is, did you, you know, as as corny as it is, every line that every parent tells every kid when they're trying, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how hard you, it's how you play, it's how hard you try. So the Kings are going to try to improve these things. Mm-hmm. It's not easy, especially given the salary cap, which we'll get into in a bit. It's right. not easy to improve. The, the rules are specifically designed to pre- prevent you from improving in a permanent way. For competitive balance, right? Yes. Or, yeah. You know, it's, it's there. Um, we'll probably be at a point soon, whether it's this year and next, where those, those rules loosen. Um, but the impact of COVID on the game mm-hmm. has kept the cap flat, though contracts remain the same, um, which made it difficult and still makes it difficult and will for probably one more year. Um, yeah, I don't – everything you said I liked. No. I don't know what else I would say about it, but it it was – both your points are spot on, and now it's, it's time for the Kings to make decisions. And the last two off-seasons – I said the Kings could do whatever they wanted to do, and they could. This year, they can't. They mm-hmm. have to make choices in one way or another. They don't have an open book. Um, so it'll be something at the expense of something else, which didn't have to be done in the last two years. The word Rob Blake used for it is shaping, Yeah, which I thought was good. And as he said, to your point, they can't just add like they did for the last two years. Yep. Now, I thought... Uh, that last summer would have presented the challenge that this summer did. It's why for the year prior, I kept saying they had too many guys and that hard decisions would have to be made. They, they, they really didn't, right? No, yeah. they didn't. And they, and, and to their credit, they pulled out every trick and every scrap of luck they had to get to the finish line this season with this roster. Mm-hmm. It required a lot of maneuvering. It required taking advantage of every player that was available to be, you know, uh, assigned to Ontario and not. It took trading a player that hurt mm-hmm. a lot of people's feelings. Yeah. But they got here. And had they beaten Edmonton in the first round, I think a lot of people would have 
been very, very happy with the results. This, sorry, this summer, they now, to your point, do have a lot of hard decisions. And Rob Blake even said, we'd like to bring back this exact roster, Mm -hmm. but it's probably not possible. Especially when you look at, you know, the the guy who started all six games in the playoffs, a top four defenseman, Mm -hmm. and what your third or fourth leading goal scorer all need new deals. Mm -hmm. And the value of those players exceeds the amount of cap space the Kings have. So even if you find a way to get them all back, it's at the expense of someone who's currently under contract. So something has to give somewhere. And that's just talking about players coming back, not even potential additions. So it's the most interesting offseason from that point specifically because the Kings aren't dealing with 20 to $30 million in available space. They're dealing with, say, 10. And that's a big difference when you look at, for the first time really, you have to make not only decisions on your own guys who are good, but also adding and making the team better. And that's the first time in this three-year addition building process that they've had to make those decisions. This this summer, um, I've said this to a couple of people now, one of the reasons that I think I rebounded so quickly from this first-round playoff loss is that I always felt, well, maybe not always, for a while I have felt that what happens this offseason would be more impactful on the long run of the franchise than what happened in the playoffs. I did not see this team as a dangerous Stanley Cup contender, though I believe what I said at the start of the season, if everything went well, if everything broke perfectly, they could be. Mm -hmm. I didn't really ever feel like they were a dangerous Cup contender. This summer was looming (laughs) for a few years now. Um, We will see Rob Blake judged on not only how he handles you know, unexpected things this summer. So if if a player like Kevin Fiala becomes available and they have an opportunity to make a move on him or even not a star, you know, if there's a depth signing or an opportunity to trade into the first round, you know, momentary unforeseen things that pop up, he will be judged on that. He will also be judged on on the progress of the franchise. Are there young players? You know, is Rasmus Kupari able to take a long term role next year? Do the younger players fill in for play, you know, for departing players? You know, you said you can't keep mm-hmm. everybody. Well, okay, if somebody has to leave, do they have an internal solution? Because if they're ejecting somebody to make financial space for somebody else, that means you can't replace that person right. with somebody who makes the same amount of money. You have to replace them with somebody who makes less. You have however many players in the development system. So there are a lot of there are a lot of boxes. Um, for the front office to be graded on this summer, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. And as I said earlier, we will get to that next week in our ten biggest questions for the off season because there are some big old questions. But we're talking about Rob Blake and what he said. <laughs> um, Back on track, yeah. But we'll talk about one of those players, and that is Gavrikov. He was likewise uh, very complimentary of Gavrikov and what it means for the team to have Gavrikov. I think it's it just across the board, right? Like mm-hmm. as emotions aside from that deal. Even those impacted the most agreed it was a terrific deal for the Kings. It brought in a player who was able to change the way that the Kings could handle a series like that and and played down the stretch. He was a great fit this year. Um, Now it's about finding the right solution long term. Is it him? Do they find the right deal that makes sense for player and team? I don't know. Uh, Hopefully, because it means that it's a 
something that fits within the way that the Kings want to build. Um, but if not, he was a good addition at the deadline. He fit in very well. He played well down the stretch. He played well in the postseason. I think he was like plus five over the six games or something like that. So he did his thing. He was very good. And now we'll see what happens. This note, I'm curious if it mattered to anybody else or if it was just me, but I really liked it. He was asked, now that they've played Edmondson twice in a row, are you looking, you know, like, do you make acquisitions mm-hmm. specifically designed to match up against Edmonton? And he said, no. I liked that the question was asked, and I liked his answer. Did that even? Yep, it, it did resonate yeah. with me. Um, I, I think that he essentially said, if you just build to get better, it will help you in that series. Mm-hmm. Um you can't just go out and be like, all right, what's the ideal configuration of 20 guys to beat the Oilers? Because what do you do when that configuration makes you worse, but you think it's better to beat? And you're still guessing, right? Like there isn't a magic formula to beat the Oilers because of the players that they have. You have to build the team to the best of your ability and make it work for you. Because at the end of the day, this team isn't just trying to beat the Oilers. They're trying to win a championship and you have to win four series to do so. You never know when and how you might face the Oilers or who else you might face. Um, So it's about still getting better. The Kings still have to get better between internal and external improvements. And I think it just keeps going back to this point of, for the first time, they have to make the right decisions in order to do that. Not just selecting the right guys, because they've done a terrific job of selecting the right guys coming in. But now it's selecting the right guys either coming in or staying and selecting the right guys, unfortunately, that have to leave. Because in the world we live in, there's only so many spots, and there's only so much money on the cap, and the Kings have to make those choices. He talked about needing to fix the penalty kill. Um, I'm not sure that that's really in his control. That's more of a coaching thing. Um, He was asked if he believed that the team needed more size on the back end. And there's an emotional part of me that thinks, yeah, yeah. They need to get bigger. Big, mean defenseman. That's what I remember. That's what hockey is. But his answer appealed to the non-emotional side of me, which mm-hmm. was, look, we had a really good season with a blue line that everybody concedes is not the biggest in the league. Now, part of the reason they went and got Gavrikov was because he was bigger. Mm-hmm. But he's not a bruising big defenseman. He's a strategic big de- He uses his size his length, yeah, right? Yes, as more than his as weight. anyone yes. I've seen is yeah. the way he uses his height and mm-hmm. his length and his defensive stick. Right. He's not driving people into the boards or cross-checking can, them in the lower he, back. He can hold his own, right, in those Absolutely. battles. He did he, once against uh, McDavid, didn't he? And and Leon. I mean, yeah, he was one of the one of the few guys with mm-hmm. that strength who could match up with a guy like Leon Dreisaitl, and that's that's good. He was a good fit in that way. But look at, you know, teams have size on the blue line for sure, but it's not as if, you know, you look at, the defending cup champs, they weren't rolling out six, six, six guys, right? They had Cal McCarr, they had Sam Gerrard, they had Bowen Byram, and they had Devin Taze all in their top six. Yes, they had Josh Manson, mm-hmm. who was a big bruising defenseman, but it wasn't, he wasn't the norm. There was four other dudes who were slick skaters, puck movers, who also could hold their own defensively. He was also asked about, um, <laughs> I don't know even why I'm focusing on this. I just thought it was a perfect... It's a perfect example of why it's important, I believe, for anybody presenting as media to be careful about their words. 
Okay. I don't, he, don't even know where you're going with this. <laughs> he was asked about Brant Clark. Or no, I don't think he was asked about Brant Clark. He was asked about younger players graduating. Mm-hmm. And he said Brant Clark will be a new pro. Yes. Is the only player who will be a new pro next year. And John Hoven, the mayor, to his credit, requested clarification. Because yeah. when he said that out loud, my mind instantly went to, oh boy. We're going to have a bunch of people saying that Rob Blake said that Brant Clark will right. be on the Kings roster next year. Which he didn't. He did not. Yeah. <laughs> and it's an important but subtle distinction that Brant Clark's season next year will be his first pro season because he'll be 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And he will be a professional hockey player available to play for the Reign or the Kings. New pros is a phrase that Rob Blake has used several times before. The Kings have five new pros right. next year. They have Brant Clark. They have Eric Portillo. They have Alex LaFerriere, they have Francesco Panelli, and Cole Krieger. they have Cole Krieger. So yeah. that's five new pros, all of which really, other than Clark, have been added to that mix in the last, three of them have been added in yeah. the last couple months. So mm-hmm. they have five new pros, it's just Brant Clark is the one most likely to make the jump straight to the NHL. Um, it's interesting, and it was a great clarification, because you're right, out of context, people will not understand what he's saying and run with it the wrong way. Um, he'll come in and battle for a job. He'll That's what training camp is for, right? Mm-hmm. You don't pencil in the roster in May. You pencil in the roster in October after seeing what these guys do during training camp. Um, good to have him, clearly. Um, he's an exciting player. He's one who, like you said, makes – he's on an entry-level deal. You need players on entry-level deals to come in and contribute, but he's one of several in that boat who are on lower deals who could come in and contribute um, if the space is there. So it was a very good clarification. Um, And the term new pro, if you know how Rob Blake speaks, he says that term every year. It just happens to be applied to a guy who did technically play pro games. Yeah. And I, I, again, I did want to applaud John for doing that. Yeah. I thought it was, I I thought it was important and I was glad he did it in the moment. I was like, why are you following up? And then you explained it. And I was like, that's a terrific follow up because it eliminated a lot of misquotes. Yeah. And, uh, just a quick aside about the media. Um, I often fear that media members don't take into account their reputation when they say things. And it's something that I'm always in the back of my mind, at least cognizant of when I say something, I'm no longer just a random person saying something. I'm now Jesse Cohen, employee of the LA Kings. And if I say, oh, you know, I was talking to a player in the locker room and they said this, or, oh, I saw, you know, a player in the press box doing this or speaking to somebody, mm-hmm. I'm aware that my saying it will ca- could potentially set off somebody saying, well, why would he say that if it wasn't important? Or mm-hmm. why would that person have that? You know, it, you know, and it's right. So I try not to do that. So as I said, good on Hoven. There was a, something said to he, it was his question. Mm-hmm. He clarified. Yeah. And so anyway. And it, the question he originally asked wasn't even no to, <laughs> nothing to do with Grant Clark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's a very good follow up. Yep, so I agreed. Want to do that next is injuries because last year the injury conversation was what was it four shoulder injuries? I think it was four shoulders. Yeah. No answer as to who it was. We just knew Alex Iafalo was one because he self identified. Self identified. Now I don't know what the like medical rules are when it comes to a general manager of a of a sports team publicly disclosing his players' injuries. Somebody referenced the fact that like it might be a HIPAA violation if the player doesn't want his injuries 
revealed publicly. Um, as it turns out, Kevin Fiala talked to us about his knee injury. He said it wouldn't require surgery. wasn't real clear about what it is. But honestly, he gave you the body part, yeah. the long-term outlook, and that he was at somewhere less than 100% in games four, five, and six. And he scored six points in three games. So, so what was- <laughs> however bad it was, it wasn't like, I'm not worried. No. <laughs> um, Blake Lazat said he had back spasms in yeah. his lower back, which I am not a doctor, far from it. But it makes perfect sense, right? He's a smaller dude who gets cross-checked in his back a lot. And it sounded like, you know, it was a tough week, but yeah. clearly he was able to play in game six, practice the three days leading up. So he recovered fine. Yeah. Uh, Gabriel Velarde, no information. Yep. <laughs> and very, I thought, amusingly, no information. And then Rob Blake stopped himself from potentially revealing information, asked the room if Gabriel Velarde had given any information, right. was told no. And then he laughed and said, well, then I'm not going to be the one. Yeah. So. Hey, no, it's Nanya, right? That's, right, that's exactly. That's is. Like, yeah. He recovered and came back. Yeah. And if he wanted to say, this is what I had, great. If he doesn't, then I don't know. It's not, he's not mandated to, right? Nope. Team, no, and it is, no. I get it as a fan, it is frustrating, but. But he came back. He did. And started playing. So does it really matter why he missed the game on April 6th? No. It doesn't, right? So. So that's the injuries. And then that brings us to the final topic. There were a couple of questions asked about this topic. And it is going to be a huge part of our next episode, which is the 10 biggest questions of the offseason. Uh, I don't even know where to start with this one. It's the goaltending. Mm-hmm. There are multiple angles. Um, I'll start with this one. He was asked in the offseason, is goaltending a priority over other positions? His answer was no. I understand that that's the answer that has to be given. I understand that there's probably an element of truth to that because his job is to manage the entire roster. Gavrikov is not a goaltender. Velarde is not a goaltender. Both of them need new contracts. Their contracts will affect how the rest of the roster is shaped. But everybody understands the situation the franchise is in when it comes to goaltending. I think if he had answered yes, it would be a slight in other directions, right? Like why yeah. why is signing a player there more important than signing Vladislav Gavrikov right. or than paying Gabe Velarde or doing a number of different things. So I I think it, it goes back to the, the notion of the cap where they can't fill every hole that they might have with certain players, so they have to make decisions. The fact of the matter is they do have two guys under contract in net who played in the NHL this year, one of which went 20-something in five or yeah. whatever it was. So it's... It is a priority to get the right guys to determine what they want to do. But it's not the only, it's not like the Kings were like, oh, if they just had better goaltending in that series, they would have won, right? It's not like there was 18 guys who were terrific and one guy who was not. Um, So there are decisions to be made in net, no doubt, including the guy who played in this series. But there are a lot of decisions that have to be made. It's it's just the flip side of the why the goaltender should never win the MVP coin. It was also a yes or no question, right? Yeah. You know, like it, if it was an open-ended question, maybe asked a little differently, mm-hmm. it might have gotten a different answer of like how important is yeah, solving the goal solving the goaltending, not is yeah. it? Because then you're just saying compare A to B and you can say no. Yeah. And from a fan perspective, because the goaltender plays, you know, in a best case scenario, all 60 minutes in the mm-hmm. game and plays, you know, a singular position on a team, it feels like a priority. And when you have, you know, what's the expression? You have two goalies, you have none, and goaltending isn't, you know, everything. It's the only thing. There's a million different cliches. 
it feels like a priority and it and it will be a priority but not the priority yeah, exactly so that brings us to the next question he was directly asked about corpus Allo. to your point you referenced the salary cap again mm. and and also when it comes to an unrestricted free agent it's not exclusively the team's decision right even with restricted free agents, it's not exclusively the team's decision. They but, just have more more yeah. control over the situation. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, players have earned to be unrestricted free agents if they want to, right? They, yeah. It's a once, maybe twice in a lifetime opportunity to choose. Um, when you're drafted, you are essentially not able to choose where you go for eight, nine years without inserting yourself. You're under team control for that span. When you're, in a, when you're a UFA, you can choose if you for some reason, hate Los Angeles, but we're drafted there, you can leave at that point. It's your right as a player. Players should get that process. I want to backtrack really quickly as long as we're on the subject of who gets to choose financial relationships. Todd McClellan was asked if he's thinking about an extension beyond his fifth year, which was interesting, but okay, I understand. You lose to the same team back-to-back seasons, I I suppose, in a different market. I think it's just a... It's the same as asking Andre Kobatar or Victor Arvidsson, right? Like well, I was a... going to draw a distinction between the two right okay. there. Because those, in my mind, Andre Kobatar and Victor Arvidsson were both asked yeah. if they would be interested in signing an extension because this is the last year of their deal, 2023-2024. This is a minor complaint on my part. Those feel like training camp questions to me. It's 12 hours after you lost a playoff series. It, it could, really... though, <laughs> potentially be the last time you talk to that player until training camp. Sure. And the player is eligible to do that extension before training camp. It's but, July 1. But is anybody who asked those questions writing an article about will Andre Kopitar sign an extension? I don't know. It just no, felt like but, an odd. But if he does, I'm glad the question was asked. No, I guess. I you don't know. know. It's just, be, it felt odd to me. But it's that's a, just me. It, hurt, it certainly, in my opinion, enhances the narrative. Mm. All right. When, say, on July 1st, Andre Kopasar signs a two-year extension that right. kicks in in 24, well, when asked a month ago or two mm. months ago, he indicated that he wants to be here and be a one-franchise player. And for those reasons, I, I think they were perfectly... All right. I thought it was weird, but I thought the answers were perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the last note I have for Rob Blake, and this one came in the middle of the availability, but I saved it for last just because it's going to set up our next episode, 10 Biggest Questions for mm-hmm. the Offseason. That was, what is the plan for Cal Peterson? And Rob Blake's answer was, we got to get Cal to be an NHL goalie. That's why we signed him to it. I think was the, the second sentence was <laughs> sort of yeah. mush mouth. But, but the gist of it is, you know, and that's not definitive, right? Things could happen in the summer. But Cal Peterson has two years left mm-hmm. at $5 million a year. And I said it in the middle of the season before they acquired Jonas Corposalo. I will say it again now. The best possible outcome for the LA Kings regardless of how likely anybody feels it may be, regardless of whether or not it happens, mm-hmm. the best possible outcome is that Cal Peterson becomes the player they expected him to be when they signed that contract. No doubt about it. That makes li- everybody's life easier. It erases a ton of problems. That is the best available outcome that everybody should be hoping for. All we can look at right now are the players that are signed. Mm-hmm. Um, the two goaltenders within the organization signed with NHL experience are Phoenix Copley one year and Cal Peterson two years. So Mm -hmm. that's two guys with NHL contracts who are signed to deals for next year. So you're right. It certainly makes it easier if you know what, if the Kings say we're going to put our resources in other areas, we're going to give Cal Peterson a shot to take some of the net back this year. And he comes in and does that. It's a win-win for all parties. Um, that certainly would be ideal. 
Um, obviously, there are a lot of situations that could happen, and we'll have to see how they play out. And I'm aware that there are people who want, you know, I've heard, I don't even think I'm actually allowed to say the names of <laughs> players that I've heard attached in rumors because I don't know what our, as a team employee, I'm not sure if I'm covered by tampering rules or whatever. But yeah. I'm aware that there are other players signed by other teams that are wildly rumored to be yeah. available or targeted by the Kings. I, you look you know, at the Winnipeg Jets exit availability and you saw that's what I was going for. Yeah. <laughs> 10 players say they don't want to be a part of a rebuild. Right. One of them's a goaltender. A couple were D a lot of really good forwards. Yeah. And you know that players don't want to be a part of a rebuild when they're in that stage of their career. Yeah. Doesn't mean there is any tie whatsoever to the LA Kings, but there are going to be goaltenders available. Yeah. Free agency and via trade. It and just is going to be the case. Talking about the salary cap one more time. One of the moves that is available to a franchise at any point in time is in order to move forward, to temporarily move back or sideways, right? You're on a path. You see that the path is blocked. And so you have to get on another path. And what we'll see this summer now is how creative, how flexible, how how adept at maneuvering is our front office to moving on to different paths. Because as Rob Blake said, this path, of returning next season with this specific roster, unlikely. It's so. almost the way the team started the year. Mm-hmm. Like the talent was better, but the path that they started on did not have the end goal potentially of even being in the playoffs. Right. They had to reset. They had their lumps, but they found a better path that went further. And they're going to have to do the same thing again, this time just from a personnel point of view. And then you see how it goes on the ice. Well said. I think that is going to do it for this one. Like I said, next week we will have the 10 biggest questions. Facing the Kings this offseason. Zach Dooley, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me.